Lord, we do praise you, and we do sing hallelujah. Praise the Lord, we're free. We're mindful that not everyone can say that this morning. We're mindful also that in many ways we can take our freedom for granted or even abuse it. So we pray that you would help us to be careful with this blessing you've given us, blessing of liberty. And we pray that as we come to your word this morning, you might equip us to bear witness in the world on this very issue of slavery and freedom. And we pray that you would make your church a great force for true liberty and justice. And we pray, O oh Lord, begin with us. Do your work in our hearts. Let these not be things we mouth, but things we increasingly learn to do. Speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Slavery is not over. The United States Department of State defines slavery, modern slavery, as the act of recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining a person, a person, a person for forced labor or commercial sex acts through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. So either by might or by trickery, slavery is the grabbing of people and the forcing of those persons into your control, without their consent, for exploitation. In 2013, the United Nations estimated there were somewhere between 27 and 30 million people enslaved right in, in that year. Just a couple of years later, 2017, uh, another organization put the estimate at about 40.3 million, and some estimates run as high as 46 million. The Walk Free Foundation has developed something called the Global Slavery Index. They estimate that 58% of today's enslaved persons are in five countries primarily, India, Pakistan, China, Bangladesh, and Uzbekistan. Of the 40 million or so people who are enslaved, 10 million are children. It's about 25%. While the numbers of people who are enslaved are going up, the cost of enslaving people is going down. A slave in America in 1809, in today's dollars, cost an estimated $40,000 a person. Today, a slave costs about $90. The estimated value of the slave trade as a, as a trade is put about $35 billion per year. Slavery ain't over. It ain't even weakened. When Christians talk about slavery, they normally talk about the difficult passages in the Bible where slavery is recorded and addressed, or maybe talk about the historical examples of slavery. In this country, we might give consideration to the transatlantic slave trade. And sometimes in these conversations about slavery, you meet people who say, essentially, as skeptics or atheists or unbelievers or just strugglers, they don't believe in the Bible because of what the Bible says about slavery. The fact that the Bible includes slavery in it. Or you meet people who don't necessarily say they don't, they don't, they don't disbelieve the Bible, but in our neighborhood, I, we can go out and we can meet some people and try and talk about Christianity. And in their minds is the history of the church in this country and its complicity in slavery. So that slavery is a stumbling block for the gospel. 
And you might even meet some folks who say slavery is therefore, excuse me, Christianity is therefore the white man's religion and not for us. And then, as I said, they're the living, breathing, enslaved persons around today for those three reasons, because of skeptics who attack the Bible, because of unbelievers who stumble at slavery, and because of the real life and death circumstances of persons who are currently in slavery, Christians need to think about this issue carefully, and I would argue get involved in it prayerfully. That's why as we turn in our series from those sort of basic theological statements we wanted to make about justice to sort of considering a series of of justice issues, we want to begin with slavery. We want to begin with something that was global in its impact and something that was biblical in terms of its address and content matter. We'll work over the course of the next few weeks from sort of global issues down to issues that are sort of on our block, on our street, in our neighborhood. So we're wanting to gain increasing proximity and specificity with regard to the issues that we're thinking about. But this morning, I wanted to think about slavery. And to do that, I want to ask and answer four questions from the Bible. Taking notes, this is the outline this morning. Number one... What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? Number two, what does the law teach about slavery? What does the law teach about slavery? Number three, what does the New Testament teach about slavery? What does the New Testament teach about slavery. And number four, finally, what can Christians do, if anything, about slavery? What can Christians do, if anything, about slavery? Now, to start the conversation, I want us to turn our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to consider verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. While you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer. Again, Father, we want you to speak to us and to speak clearly and to help us hear and to help us believe. More than that, we want you to help us to act. Act on behalf of those, Lord, affected by this issue. Teach us, O Lord, to correct oppression and to seek justice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 11. Apostle Paul there writing to that young pastor, Timothy, in this letter is instructing Timothy on how to lead the church. And right up front, he's addressing some issues that are at play in the church. There are some people who are wanting to be teachers of the law and go on about genealogies, and they are upsetting the church, dividing the church. And in that context, Paul speaks about the law, how to understand it properly, and and gives us some information here useful for our topic. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Right off the bat, verse 8 there, Paul gets into the answer to our first question. What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? In a sentence, the purpose of the law is to expose ungodliness, to expose unrighteousness, to expose sin, to expose injustice, and to restrain those who practice such things. That's what we see in verses 9 and 10. Now Paul, immediately, you may recognize this, immediately as he lists off those different kinds of persons who are lawless, who are ungodly, he does so in a way that parallels the Ten Commandments. 
that each thing he lists there is actually a, a sort of negative example of each of the Ten Commandments. He goes from the ungodly, those who will have some other God except God. And then he, and he moves from the, from the ungodly, you see there, excuse me, um, to sinners and those who are unholy and profane, takes the name, Lord's name in vain, those who don't honor their fathers and mothers but strike their fathers and mothers. The law says thou shalt not murder, and here he lists murders, and on down the list until we come to our word, enslavers. Or you may have a translation that says man-stealers. Paul is saying here that the purpose of the law is to restrain and to expose people with such character, people who live contrary to God's law. Now, why does Paul reach back to the law in this conversation? Well, in part, it's because at the time of Paul's writing, um, the, the church didn't have what we now consider the, the completed canon of Scripture. What they had was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And they were figuring out this thing called Christianity using the Old Testament Scripture along with the sort of testimony and, and the teaching of the apostles who had known the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our day, with both both testaments, a completed Bible, we can, if we're not careful, we can slip subtly into thinking that the Old Testament is, well, old. And the New Testament is all the new stuff that we need to pay attention to. And the Old Testament, we, we don't need to sort of worry about that. What we really need to do is read the, the New Testament, and if we're really unhealthy, we, we say things like, we just need to stick to the red letters as if they had red ink in the first century. As if the person who didn't write with the black ink wasn't also writing the red ink. No, we need to read the whole Bible as Christian scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament. So, Paul tells us the law is good. Then he lays down this list of persons who are living contrary to the law. The law exposes and is meant to restrain and in fact condemns but the law is not meant to condemn the righteous, the just, those who have come to know God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law continues to be useful to them to, to know how to live, just as Paul is using it here. But the law no longer rules over them. It no longer condemns them. The law has been satisfied by Jesus Christ in his active obedience to God and in his death on the cross. So that now through repentance from sin and faith in Christ, we who believe in Jesus are among the righteous. Not those exposed by the law, but who understand how the law is in accordance with the gospel. But plainly, the Bible here condemns man-stealing, slavery, kidnapping and capturing people robbing them of their freedom, and forcing them into labor of various sorts. Now, if Paul understands that so plainly, why didn't the American church understand that so plainly? If Paul understood that so clearly, why is that such a confusion historically and contemporarily? We want to be prepared with an apologetic for the skeptic who wants to reject the Bible because of slavery. And we want to be prepared with an apologetic for the brother and sister on the block who stumbles at this issue when it comes to considering Christ. And we want to be prepared to understand the Bible well so we can get involved in this issue in our day. So let's turn to this question, what does the Old Testament, what does the law teach about slavery? Now you're going to have to oil the hand on your Bibles because we're going we're gonna to walk through the law, okay? And we're going to try to give you everything the Bible teaches in the Old Testament about slavery and how we ought to understand it. The first thing that we learn about slavery in the Old Testament is that God's people were slaves. Now, I'm inclined to think that's of some theological significance. What does it mean that when God decided to choose a people for himself, he chose slaves? Well, we'll see. Exodus chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. It's the first mention of any people group in the Bible being enslaved. And this is what we read there. The more they were oppressed, referring to the Israelites, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. 
And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's how Exodus opens. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we learn that God hears his people. During those many days, the kingdom of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And what does God do in response to what he sees and what he knows and what he hears in the groaning of his people? Well, you flip over to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, God promises deliverance. And this is what the word of God says. God speaking says, moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You get there a pinch of realism about slavery. Don't believe folks when they tell you that slaves were happy and singing. They're not happy in singing in the, in the fishing trades of Nigeria where boys and men are forced into slavery. They're not happy in singing in the brick kilns in, in Asia where folks are forced into slavery. Little girls who are sold to be child brides or trafficked in the sex trade, they're not happy in singing. It's harsh and bitter. And their groaning goes up to God. And God hears. And God knows. And with Israel, he delivered them. Now the interesting thing is, as you move on in Exodus, and you work your way right after this deliverance, or you come down to Exodus chapter 20, when God has brought them out of Egypt, this is, this is what God says there. That their deliverance from slavery becomes one of the main ways that God identifies himself with his people. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. You read there a line that you will see throughout the rest of the Old Testament in many ways, in many contexts. God says there, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That act of his deliverance becomes one of the defining features of the relationship between the former slave and the God who delivered them. And so they had to remember that and to keep covenant that this is the God who delivered them from bondage to freedom, who heard their cry and acted on their behalf. That's really, in one sense, how we are introduced to slavery in the Bible. A God who delivers a people who for 400 years had been held in bondage. But now the next thing we see in Exodus 21 is God then puts in place some regulations about this very issue of slavery. So in Exodus 21, turn there with me. We'll begin right there in verse 1. The first thing that, we, that God sort of regulates, he says that Hebrew slaves are only to, be, only to serve six years and then to be freed. Exodus 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Now, it's not hard to compare this to American chattel slavery and to see the difference. Here, this bondage of God's people was limited in time, right? It was not in perpetuity, and, and it ended with freedom didn't die in slavery. 
That's the first thing we see. The next thing we see here is that, that the relational status of Hebrew slaves wasn't changed by slavery. So notice now in verse 3, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. So if a man comes into slavery single or married, whatever is the case, that's how they leave. And in that way, Hebrew slavery isn't breaking up the family the way slavery does today or did in the transatlantic slave trade. And notice the third thing. The slave can voluntarily remain in slavery. Verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Regarding Hebrew slavery, this was the only way to be a slavery for the rest, in slavery for the rest of your life. If you volunteered for that in order to keep a family that you didn't enter slavery with but acquired while you were in slavery. Right? Everybody tracking with me? Notice the fourth thing. Verse 7. The laws regarding selling daughters as slaves. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. There's still there some protecting of the daughter in some way. She's not sort of turned loose into the world of slavery the way men are. A fifth thing. There's law, there are laws governing marriage between the slave owner and the slave bride. Notice there, verse 8. You see the, the marriage that's foreseen and the breaking up of the marriage. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So here... The laws are governing and restraining the wickedness that's perpetrated against women in slavery, protecting the marital rights and ensuring that even in the case of divorce, that she would still have those rights preserved by the, by the former owner husband. One more, Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Now, if you only needed one proof text to demonstrate that slavery is wrong, and if you only wanted one text to maybe sort of figure out what's in the back of Paul's mind when he names man-stealing in that list of things contrary to the gospel, here it is, black and white. You steal a person and sell them into slavery, God gives the death penalty. It's wrong. There's no biblical basis for it whatsoever. Which also means that the texts in the New Testament that, that govern slavery are not texts that can be used to justify slavery. Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21, and 26 and 27, and verse 32. God here gives law to restrain wickedness to protect the life and the body of the slave. Verse 20 and 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and a slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So any mistreatment that leads to death is to be avenged. And any mistreatment, as quote, simple as knocking out a tooth, is meant to lead to freedom. Verse 36, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So when the Bible is talking about the life of a slave and the law is given to restrain evil 
It is a law given in that sense to protect life, to guard it from mistreatment. But not only that do we get these sort of general laws that govern slavery and restrain the practice, but we also get laws concerning the purchase of freedom and escape. So now let's leave Exodus, turn over to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25. If you're new to the Bible, I should say, you know, beginning in the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. When I say chapter number, that's the big number on the page. When I say verse number, that's the small number. So Leviticus chapter 25, big number, beginning in verse 39, small number. Notice here now how the law guarantees the ability for a person to purchase their freedom. Now we're talking about if your brother becomes poor. So that's a, a Hebrew or an Israelite has become poor and sells himself to you, another Hebrew or Israelite, you shall not make him serve as a slave. So this is a different category. This is more like a debtor's prison, if you will. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. So always this provision for the freeing of slaves. Verse 42, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. So this is how God feels about his people. His people are only going to be servants to one person, that's him. These are my people. I saved them. I ransomed them. They shall go free. And if that's true of God in Israel, certainly that's true of Christ in the new covenant. He has given his blood for us. He has ransomed us. He has purchased us from the auction block of slavery to sin, and he's purchased us for himself. We serve him alone if we are Christians. And so it can never be right that those who belong to Christ be forced in servitude to another. So God always has in mind the freedom of his people. Verse 42, or excuse me, verse 43, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations. Now, now we're talking about slaves from other nations outside of Israel that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. You may bequeath to them your sons after you, or excuse me, bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. We'll come back to this, but you see the distinction between Hebrew slavery and enslavement of others. Leviticus 25, verses 47 to 55. That's where we see that an Israelite may not only sell himself into slavery, but also buy himself out of slavery, which implies that in this form of slavery, the slave could actually have property, own things, amass wealth. Notice verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 23. Moving forward a little bit now. The next book there, Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 16. So if Leviticus gave us the laws for purchasing one's own freedom, 
And that last passage that we looked at in Leviticus where a brother or a kinsman or someone else could could purchase you, it's called the kinsman redeemer law. That law looks forward to Christ, our kinsman, our big brother, who redeemed us by his blood from slavery to sin. But now we come down to getting your freedom some other way, running away. Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16 says this, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Now that don't sound a whole lot like American slavery, does it? With his patty rollers and mobs chasing down runaway slaves and forcing them back into slavery. Or it's tricksters taking freedmen and seducing them and leading freedmen like Solomon Northrop into slavery. It's not the same system at all. Here it says if, if a man is able to get away from his enslavement and makes it to your town, you know what you do? Well, you set up a welfare program. You give him land. You allow him to choose where he wishes to live in your city. You treat him well and you do not return him. Now in all of this, I hope that we see that what God is doing in slavery is not endorsing it, but laying down so many provisions for ending it, for bringing about the freedom of his people, whether it's by jubilee, whether it's by purchasing your freedom, whether it's by escape. Look now in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. This text requires a death penalty for a person man-stealing and selling into slavery. So we saw before, Deuteronomy 24, 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. God is looking for a holy people. And when it comes to justice and this kind of injustice, he means for it to be purged from his people. Now, all of this raises some questions as we survey the Old Testament there. What's the theological significance of the fact that God chooses for himself an enslaved people? Well, now, some of my conservative friends won't like this language, but that's all right. Because here, I think some of my liberal friends are closer to the truth. When they talk about God exercising a preferential option for the poor, for the oppressed. That's what you're seeing here. God could have chosen the mighty. He could have chosen the richest people in the world. But in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, he says, I didn't choose you because you were mighty. I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. And and, and it's a wonderful thing that we serve a God who loves slaves, who loves people who are in bondage, who loves people who have nothing, who, who loves people who groan and cry out and have only him. And he proves himself to that people to be their deliverer. And that people become known by his deliverance. That he is the God who led them out of slavery in Egypt. And he is always to be remembered as that liberating God. God wants to show the world that he's a freedom-giving God. It's the whole purpose here. That's why he delivers his people. And why does he not abolish slavery? Why does he regulate it instead? I don't know all the answers to that. I just know that God is good and he does all things well. He could have done it differently. But it seems to me he's had his purposes here in gradually freeing people, delivering people, particularly his people. And why does he permit the enslavement of non-Israelites? Why not forbid slavery altogether? Well, I think it's a lot like the way he treats marriage in Matthew 19. You remember when the Pharisees come to Jesus and says, why does Moses permit you to write a certificate of divorce and to put your wife away? You you remember what Jesus' answer is there? It's because of the hardness of your heart. It's not always so. And I think there's an analogy here to slavery and why he regulates slavery the way he does. It's because of the hardness of people's hearts. As long as there are sinners in the world, there are going to be sin in the world. And sinners are incredibly creative. We devise all kinds of ways of sinning and continuing to sin. Even when sin hurts us, we keep doing it. And God knows that about our nature. And here in his kindness, he's given us a law. 
and the rule of law to restrain that about our nature until he changes our nature, not by public policy, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main change, the greater change that we need. And so God is acting in the world to liberate the world. That's what the Old Testament shows us in all these laws about slavery. What what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament teach us about slavery? Well, in the New Testament, generally speaking, we have two kinds of statements. Actually, three kinds of statements. The other one just occurred to me. Let me give you, remind me to give you the third one, but you get two on the slides. Two kinds of statements. You get statements that are part of what's called the household codes, which are these instructions in the letters from the Apostle Paul, where he instructs people in the church how to live as Christians in their households. So he addresses husbands and wives. You know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He addresses children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he addresses masters and slaves. This is what he writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Bond service, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We see the same kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 9. Bond service, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, some folks want to stop just with these texts. And they want to argue that by the plain inclusion of these texts in the Bible, God must be endorsing New Testament slavery. I think that's simple-minded. I think that's sloppy. God is regulating these relationships. We, we are left to assume, perhaps, that slave and master are together in the same church, but that's not actually what the text says. Maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. In either case, these are not the texts that speak most directly to slavery as an institution. Those texts, we have to go elsewhere, not the household codes. We go to places like 1 Corinthians 7. So turn there with me with the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7 occurs in a section of the letter, chapter 7 to 9, where the overarching theme is freedom. You're free to marry or not marry. Chapter 9, an apostle is free to earn their living from the work of the ministry or not. And here now, he's addressing freedom as it relates to slaves. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So he starts by saying, basically, be content in whatever situation you're in. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his calling already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call, of, of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now Paul, at that point, does not wish to be misunderstood. That's why you get the parenthetical statement. Look there. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. What's Paul saying there? He says, listen, when you consider your situation in Christ, be content. You have Christ. In that sense, in comparison to Christ, nothing else matters. Not circumcision or uncircumcision, not being slave or being free. Oh, by the way, if you were a slave when you were saved, when you were called, you are really Christ's slave. You are really his bondservant. Don't worry about your slavery. But you know what? You get a chance to get out the door. Avail yourself of the opportunity. Paul knows his Old Testament better than Thabiti. He knows that the, the, sort of, the sort of ethic of the Old Testament here is, is toward liberation, is toward freedom. When he speaks about the institution of slavery itself, 
He always recommends freedom. The other place to see that is in Philemon. Turn with me to Philemon and consider, consider Paul's words in Philemon. Now you know the situation there. Philemon is a wealthy Christian. He's had some servants. One of his servants, Onesimus, has run away. Somehow or another, he bumps into Paul, and Paul leads him to faith in Christ. He gets saved. And he spends some time with Paul, serving Paul, and he's become a real helpful member of Paul's team. But Paul now wants to put some things right between Onesimus and Philemon, so Paul writes a letter to Philemon, gives it to Onesimus, says, take it back to your master. Now, you know, that, never, that letter, y'all wouldn't have that in your Bible if I was Onesimus. I'd have been like Jonah going to Tarsus, man. <laughs> but Onesimus is godly. He goes back. He obeys the apostle. Notice, but notice what Paul says, beginning in verse 12. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf doing my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now watch the turn. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul appeals to Philemon, he says earlier, on the basis of love. Paul understands that, at least in terms of Christians, who in his first, first century church who owned slaves, at least in terms of Christians, love is the most powerful social force in the world. That the love of God poured into the heart of the Christian by the Spirit of God rearranges all of our, our social relationships. Such that slave and master are no longer slave and master, but brother and brother in the Lord. And Philemon, I think, is meant to receive him as a brother, which implies freeing him as a slave. So, the other, the third category, find in places like Galatians 3.8, Colossians, uh, Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.11. It's the other place where you see a statement about slaves. And it's a statement about the equality of slaves and of all of God's people. So Paul could say, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, and so on. He said in the other place that they're neither male nor female. Now he's not saying that there are no longer men and women in the church. He's, he's saying that there's an equality in Christ that makes us all equal before Christ. That those distinctions in a very real way are, are, are so when it comes to our worth before the Lord are done away with. That's the third category. So how might we summarize the New Testament teaching? Well, we might put it this way. The New Testament views slavery as a reality. That's why we have the household code. So it's not, the New Testament is not escapist. It's not bearing his head. It does see the world for the way it is. It views slavery as a part of that reality. And so we have the household codes regulating how we treat each other. But the New Testament condemns slave trading as ungodliness contrary to the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 1, so that slaves should seek their freedom, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Christian owners with Christian slaves should free them in love, Philemon. That, I think, if you want to put the New Testament teaching in one sentence, how I would summarize it. It is not a justification for slavery of any sort, really, when the God we serve is a God who liberates. And beloved, one of the things we have to reckon with in the Christian church is that our witness on this historically has been exactly the opposite. That gospel-believing Christians supposedly have been slave-holding Christians for most of this country's history. Such that that slave-holding Christianity, in the words of Frederick Douglass, isn't Christianity at all. So hear the words of Frederick Douglass. Y'all just listen in. Hear the words of Frederick Douglass. For between the Christianity of this land 
and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. And Douglas says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. The man who wrote that was an escaped slave. Lived just about five blocks that way. The lion of Anacostia. Seeing with such clarity that there's no way to reconcile the gospel of Jesus Christ with the slaveholding Christianity of this country. Paul would have seen no way to recognize that to reconcile that. Isn't that literally what he's saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1? He says, listen, this, this, <laughs> this is contrary to the sound doctrine that is in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. This is what the ungodly do. The lawbreaker does. This is what the unsaved do. And it's so very vital for us to break apart the injustice of slavery with the purity of the gospel. To acknowledge that, to repent of it. So that if we do it here, we might increase our chances of seeing other ways that Christian witness is compromised in the world when it comes to these things. We have an answer for the person down the street who thinks that Christianity is slaveholding religion or the white man's religion. It's a short answer. It's not. The gospel sets free. God sets free. Christ sets free. We have an answer for the skeptic who says, hey, you know, I don't trust your Bible because of slavery. Have you actually read what the Bible says about slavery? God sets free. The gospel sets free. We are meant to be the freest people on the planet. And with that freedom, we are meant to work for the freedom of others, both in the gospel and in this world. Which brings us to our fourth question as we close. What can Christians do about slavery? Now, I just want to interact with some people I know would be interacting with me on this, saying that the answer to that question is nothing. It's not the mission of the church. We're not called to fix social structures. We're just called to preach the gospel. You got to love them. If you don't, you'll hate them. (laughs) Beloved, that's wrong. It is. It is. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious. It, it saddens me because it's so wrong. So glaringly wrong. Our theme verse has been Isaiah 117. Which part says, correct oppression and seek justice. You don't answer that verse with, I just preached the gospel. You answer that verse with, yes, Lord. Remember our definition of justice. Doing the right thing for the right people to the right extent in the right way. So what are we to do? Let me give you a couple of simple answers and then some questions for a more complex answer depending on who we are as individuals. Number one, we should preach against slave traders as part of preaching the gospel. That's exactly what Paul does in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He does what the Puritans call a good law work. He uses the law to expose sin and sinners to point out that it's contrary to the gospel. And the rest of the book, all he's doing is meditating on the gospel. So, beloved, do not believe people when they tell you 
that if you preach against such things, you are no longer preaching the gospel. Understand that we have a responsibility to preach against the sins of our culture and the sins of our community and the sins of our church. That means our sin and the preaching against sin has to take on an increasing specificity. And that's why the Lord has given us the law, that we might know what sin is. Paul says, I didn't even know what sin was until the law told me I should not covet. So that preaching that preaches a savior, but not sin, that preaches a heaven, but not hell, that preaching that preaches a forgiveness without finding fault, that is not gospel preaching. That is easy, cheap grace. And it has destroyed the church. Very nearly destroyed the church. So, we're going to preach the gospel here. Don't y'all doubt that. And you pray that it rings out with great power. But we're also going to preach the law here so that we might be clear about sin and righteousness, about injustice and justice. And we are not doing violence to the faith. We're being more faithful to the faith. We need to understand that. Second thing in way of application. We should eliminate slave trading inside the church. I'm not aware of any of y'all being slaveholders. But if you were, you would be excommunicated. I'm not aware of anyone in here who's enslaved. But if you were, my God, I pray that we would be the kind of community that would help you get free. I'll never forget walking into the office one one morning, Monday morning, in the Cayman Islands. There's a pastor there at First Baptist Church, Grand Cayman. I got there a little bit early, and my administrative assistant, Med Barden, was clearly lingering at the stairs, waiting for me to arrive, looking for me to come. And as soon as I got to the top of the stairs, she says, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, Sure. She says, now, you got to know, Meg, Meg is Caribbean cool. She's never flustered. She's just, she's just cool. But she was amped that morning. She says, there's somebody here insisting to see you. And I said, well, does he have an appointment? She says, no. He's been here since, he said, about 5 o'clock in the morning. He will not leave, and he will not talk to anybody but you. I said, Okay. I'm thinking it's maybe somebody with some marital difficulty or something like that. And I walk down the hallway to the, to the door and there's a Filipino man sitting on the bench outside the door. And he's clearly got all of his possessions in like three um, small grocery bags. And he greets me as, as every Filipino member I know has ever known very respectfully, calls me pastor, says, can I talk to you? He says, I, I don't care if I have to wait here all day. I said, sure, come on in. He comes into my office and he tells me the story about how he had been promised a job in the Cayman Islands. And he had worked online to sort of apply for this job and to get this job. And when he got to the Cayman Islands, they took his passport, put him in a home with about 20 other people. They controlled all of his movements. He had literally run away from slavery that morning. And so he sat and he told me that story over the course of an hour. It just broke my heart. And I thought to myself, not just preach the gospel. Help this man get free. And in God's providence, we had a brother in our church, a fellow elder, who was the chief policy officer in the country. He would be akin to uh, someone advising the president. And I called Phil. I said, Phil, uh, I need your help. And I ran down things to Phil. And Phil didn't say, Tabidi, you just worry about preaching the gospel. He said, let me leave if the functionally the president's office. And let me come get him. And, and we worked to literally free that man and the other people who were in that house. Beloved, there are multiple thousands of folks trafficked in this country. An estimate of 50 to 60,000 right now. 600 to 800,000 people cross borders in trafficking each year. We may not know someone right now. But in God's providence, and I hope he's kind enough to do it, we may come into contact with someone. And beloved, we don't need to be debating about what the Bible says about slavery and getting caught up in all of these other things. We need to free the person. We need to free the person. And we need to understand that that's the gospel at work. That's what the gospel does. It frees us. 
that we might free others in Jesus Christ and free others from literal chains as well. So how are we going to be ready to do that? Let me give you six questions, six sort of categories of questions as we close. Number one, again, we want to check our hearts, our attitudes. What's going on in our hearts about this issue? Are our hearts primed and ready in faith and in trust of God to do whatever God calls us to do should we be placed in that situation? Or are we indifferent and cold and unconcerned? If we are, we need to repent of that. Number two, we have to then identify our topics and we got to get ourselves educated. This needs to be a part of our conversation as a church. It needs to be part of our reading in our free time. There are many aspects to this. So there's the, there's the child trafficking. There is the forced marriages of children. There are the fishing trades in some countries. Uh, there's forced labor camps in Dubai and Pakistan and other places. Uh, we may not be experts on the whole of the thing, but, but how is the Lord drawing us to a particular aspect of this that we need to get aware of? Is it sex trafficking? What is it? So we need to identify our topics and learn Number three, we need to figure out what our local lanes are. How can we get involved right here in our neighborhood, right here in the sort of unique positions the Lord has given us? How are you situated? Do you work in a nonprofit? Do you work in government? Do you have some free time to volunteer with an with a organization that ends, uh, seeks to end trafficking? Uh, do you have some particular gifts and resources? Maybe you are a, a freelance writer and you can loan your freelance writing skills to an organization that might need them. You just figure that out. What's your lane and what's your opportunity? And then number five, what's your strategy? What will you actually do? How will you actually get involved? And number six, who will you ally with? This is not something we do in our own strength or by ourselves. And praise God, there are some Christian organizations that are out there doing this kind of work. I think about the International Justice Mission. You can go to their website, ijm.org slavery. That'll give you a good little primer on the issue and point you to some other resources. Or think about End Slavery Now and World Relief. Uh, World Relief is one of those organizations partnering with End Slavery Now. Or the Faith Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking up in Baltimore. World Relief does training on these issues. Maybe, maybe you got some time to go to training, get involved. What's this going to look like for you? Let me encourage you not simply to write these questions down, but to really pray through them. Really ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? Here I am, Lord. Send me. In 1864, President Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to three men in Kentucky. One was the leader of a state newspaper and a couple of the business persons who wanted to know exactly what his position was with regard to slavery and wanted to know where did he get off just trying to force his morality on the rest of the country. And President Lincoln wrote back and said a lot of things, but the second sentence in his letter was this, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. He was a man who did not profess to be a Christian, but argued in the public square very much like a thoughtful Christian. This man was saw with great clarity even if it was just natural light, that this thing is wrong at its core. And if we can't see that, beloved, nothing will be wrong to us. Everything will be justified. So we are people with a sharper moral focus than persons who don't believe the Bible. And we're people with greater spiritual resources than people who do not know our Christ and are not filled with his spirit. So we are people, most of all, who should see the wrong in this and seeing the wrong in it, act for what's right. May the Lord give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we feel ourselves to be on a journey. We don't know every destination you're taking us to. But we very much want to be faithful. That's what you require of us, that we be faithful. So help us to be faithful in our generation. Faithful, first of all, and supremely to the right proclamation of the gospel so that men might be saved. 
But help us to be faithful to all you call us to do in correcting oppression and seeking justice. Not shrinking back, but acting in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit, motivated by love. We want to be your servants. We want to be used for good. We want to make a difference for the glory of Christ and the blessing of the nations. Give us grace, O Lord, to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.